On today's episode, we will be talking about what TA can learn from professional sports. We've seen a few presentations recently of either sports psychologists, sports scientists, or really famous coaches, and the lessons we took from them and how you can apply that to TA. And we actually got some personal experiences because one of us has family who's competing at relatively high levels. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Talent Savvy, the podcast that inspires you on all things talent. From the Netherlands, my name is Bas van der Hatert. And I'm Kelly from the west coast of the United States of America. And I'm Michael coming to you from Melbourne in Australia. So we have a very international, all-around-the-world podcast for you guys today. You can imagine the times we're all speaking in, because Michael is actually already a day ahead of me and Kelly right now. But today we are talking about what TA can learn from professional sports. And the reason for this, for once, isn't an article. I can't share the article in the show notes, but actually a presentation I saw last week by the sports scientist from PSV Eindhoven, which is a soccer team, my favorite soccer team. And he was talking about, first of all, all the biases they found in their recruiting system, which is basically their talent scouting system. So you've Got the relative age effect, which has been talked about in, among other things, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. But what they've actually now found was that above the relative age effect, there's actually a relative growth effect. So, yes, a 15-year-old that's six months older is already a lot older relative, but they're still in the same age category. But people, and especially boys, start growing at those ages between 13 and 18. And the relative age of somebody has to do with how far they are along in their growth cycle. And what I was fascinated about is that they're now setting the norms, the norm cutoff dates, not hard norms, not even hard norms by age, but by relative growth from the individual player. So a hard norm is that you need to do the 30-meter sprint in four seconds, which is fast, but basically no professional player will become a professional player or no youth player will become a professional player if you can't make that four-second mark. But a 15-year-old who has not grown yet gets a little leeway in there because that person, as soon as they start growing, will have longer legs and will be able to make it, which I found fascinating. The other things he said, which I also found very interesting, is all our scouts, basically their recruiters, are now mainly data interpreters because there is no correct formula for all the data, but we are not looking at the field anymore because then the biggest and strongest guy will always be the one that's selected while the others might be a lot further. And the fourth point, which I really took away from his session, was that every player that makes the first team, every single one of them in the past uh, years that they've been really measuring this, excels in one thing. And it could be they excel in sprint, in speed, that they're just a little faster than everybody else in the team. It could be that they excel in a cognitive quality like anticipation. But there's always one thing they're better in and a lot better than all the others. You don't want the average Joe, Joe six-pack, the person that's just a seven on everything. There needs to be one thing they are excelling in. And I was thinking, 
isn't that something we as recruiters should be looking for as well? And maybe for giving some of the lesser qualities, which they said, like, it doesn't matter if somebody's got a really high anticipation, might not have to be the fastest person in the world because they don't get into trouble because they've already saw the trouble coming. That was the lessons which I took from my session. Kelly, you were just saying in our preview talk that you also saw a really interesting session by a coach a while ago. Yeah, I did for sure. We were talking in that, I guess you call it the green room, right? Our equivalent of the green room before. And I was just saying that it was a conference. It was a conference hosted by Career Builder. They had a speaker on. His name's Coach K. He's famous, but I guess, you know, there's a big audience on here. So not everybody will know him. Uh, but he's a basketball coach for Duke University. I think he was there for 25 years plus. Incredibly successful. He also coached the American Olympic team. And the thing that I remember, and obviously tons of valuable information, tons of valuable um, insight. But the thing that I remember is the story, and I, I'm, I'm probably not going to do it complete justice, but the story was when first-year students came into the school. So these are people that have clearly been incredibly successful in high school as a basketball player and have been drafted in to play for Duke and are there on a scholarship. And he would bring those first-year players into the locker room with the second and third-year players, so the more so, you know the more senior members of the team. And they started every season with a lesson where he would take everybody through tying their shoelaces. They think about these. These are people that are at college. They're 18, possibly 19 years old. And the first thing they're going to be taught by their coach is to tie their shoelaces. And then you heard some of the first year players like looking around and seeing the second and third year players intently focusing on learning to tie your shoelaces you know we double this knot we do this and he went on to explain that at some point in time at some point on the court somebody's shoelace is going to come undone because the preparation wasn't done and the basics were forgotten so he started from the very beginning with these talented players that were clearly the best that were you know best at what they did in, in the previous schools and he brought them right away down and he said okay we're going to learn to tie your shoelaces the way we want to get it done and i think the lesson in that certainly is is the basics, you know, as a recruiter or as somebody in talent acquisition, do we always do the basics? Have we forgotten what the basics are? Do we actually, and again, there's, I'm sure, numerous ones, but the one that always struck me is learning to qualify a job description or, a, a you know, a job spec. So not just taking the kind of HR document, but actually, what is this person? What is this manager? Who do they really want to hire? And getting underneath the skin of what the job is. So I, I thought that was fascinating. I, I love that story. And I will tell you his name. His name was Mike Kruzowski. I'm going to murder his name, I know. but <laughs> It's not the easiest name to say, that's for sure. No, which is why he's known as Coach K. So I'll stick with Coach K. But Coach K's first-year students teaching them to tie their shoelaces, I thought was a brilliant analogy for never forget the basics and doing well. I totally agree. So, Michael, you actually have some personal things with sports and why you are on this podcast as well. Can you tell our audience your personal experiences with sports? Yeah, so I come at it from a couple of different perspectives. So far, we've talked a bit about team sport. Now, my daughter was a nationally ranked uh, distance runner, 5K and beyond. Uh, she spent some time in the US college system. And the training squad that she was in had former world champions, Olympians, national record holders in it. But all of them are doing an individual sport, yet all coaching and training the same way. And the things that I saw in a group like that, there was a real power in doing the same thing over and over and over again until it became something so unconscious 
that it was just muscle memory. So in the instance of somebody who's a distance runner, it's your stride pattern. If you run with the most optimum stride, you have the least physical impact on your body. Therefore, you can go longer, faster. You can increase the the time over distance. And so practicing something to the point where it was so subconscious meant that you could then focus on the other things that you needed to lift. Because if you're trying to fix 10 things at once, you're going to fail. We know this. It's too hard to take on too many data points. So get one thing down to a perfect science. Then you can focus on the next thing, get that down to a perfect science. And you can reach a point where you are doing so many things at such a peak level without actually any mental load, you can then focus on those psychological impacts of sport, right? How do you, on a race day, manage the conditions? How do you manage tactics? How do you manage different circumstances that you can't train for? But if you're trying to do all of that on a day, that can be nearly impossible. The second angle I bring to this is I play a lot of team sport. I've been playing rugby league. Those of you who know that, a fairly violent, full contact sport. And in a team in rugby league, one of the things that we know is what's really important is to have people who can do one job really well. And you don't actually have to be very good at anything if you can do one thing really well. And there's value. I think we lose sight of that when we're recruiting in a team. How do you balance out a team? And in competitive sport, that is one of the things everyone's trying to look at. How do you cover all the bases, all the angles? So in hiring, I look at it from the perspective, because I work on the internal side, whenever I'm bringing somebody into a team, what do they add in terms of value to the team? And that could be on an individual skill. It could be a particular set of knowledge they have. But I think from the perspective of team sport, Anyone who's doing recruiting into teams is always looking for the what's the edge that we don't have? What's the extra skill that we're missing? And I think often in terms of recruiting, we tend to get so fixated on the particular skills of the role, we can lose sight of the wider team and the impact that any new member is going to have on that. And I think it's something in recruitment we should probably take a lot deeper look at when we're trying to balance things out. Preaching to the choir as far as I'm concerned, (laughs) I've always been extremely interested in how do teams function and what do people bring to a team and with my assessment and and looking at i always start with you know can we assess the entire team and see if there's a certain type of people already in there for example uh, what we're now looking at with one of my clients is we're slowly getting them to acknowledge and hopefully also at some point assess because it's really uh, everything is voluntary there but the team and then you see that certain teams are highly analytical but miss for example communication skills and some others are extremely well in communicating but have no analytical skills whatsoever so you're trying to get those hiring managers to say listen this might be what you're lacking in your team you know you guys got it right all the time but you never get it right because you're not communicating to your coworkers in a way that they like it so you might want to get somebody very highly communicative in there so you don't only ha- have it you know have the data and have it right you're also going to get acknowledged for being right if you learned how to communicate better so that's something i think if you're if we're talking about lessons from top athletes and 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 team sports in this case 
look at the entire team and look at what could be added and missing? Firstly, I think it's a really interesting point. And, and secondly, do we think our educational systems and, you know, we're representing many different continents here, right, <laughs> are, are, are letting us down in some respects? Because the thing you said there is, is it's OK to be really good at one thing and, you know, average a bunch of other stuff or just really good at this one thing. Right. And it's the same in American football. You know, you train for your one position. If you're the, you know, you're the, you're the kicker, your job is to kick that ball and, and, to, and to score that field goal. And I'm wondering if, you know, our education, we never sit down with kids and say, actually, it's okay to be really good at this one thing. And you can spend the next year becoming really, really good at it. And that's going to open up career opportunities. We, we, we sandwich this whole education thing, which is you need all these general things to go along with it. I wonder if there's a debate there that we're, we're not taking that into the educational system as much as we should do. Listen, I was kicked down a level in high school because my French and my German were absolute crap. <laughs> do I really need French and German? Not that. No, I think Michael and I are probably withstand from that argument. <laughs> I know you actually speak some French, Kel, but I probably still win it on German for you, but it was way too low for getting my high school equivalent stuff. It's an interesting point that you raise, Kel, and I think one of the other things that we do a lot of is everybody's focused on trying to be the best at a whole bunch of things, right? We're, we're trying to cover a lot of areas and there's some real value in being consciously competent at one or some things, right? Like just having that skill to know this is what I'm good at. Because particularly, I think in your earlier in your careers, you know, one of the challenges you often face is how do you make your way in the world? And having an anchor point can just be such a solid way of retaining confidence and feeling like you're actually making a contribution. And we know for people, you know, being certain of contribution is a really big psychological driver. And as you're bringing people through in a career, I also wonder, because we're consciously looking at a lot of things, you know, when we talk about careers, everyone's supposed to be planning, what's your next job already? You know, where are you going? What are you doing? How are you getting there? But I think we do lose sight of the fact that sometimes it's, it's good to be just good at something and feel comfortable with that and settle in. Because, you know, again, you're looking at it from a team perspective, you can't have everybody in the team wanting to be a manager. First of all, not everybody should be a manager. <laughs> we, we've all seen that. But there's real value in saying to somebody, you know what, you're really, really good at this thing. It's something that you do that is an absolute standout. And because you're really good at that, you add enormous contribution to the wider group. And I just think at times we set people up for failure by saying to them, you've always got to be striving for something new. Sometimes being settled where you are, being comfortable and being able to know that every day you turn up, you can do your job is the greatest single thing that you could give somebody as a skill in life. Now, I fully agree with you. And I actually, be, having been a manager for a very short moment and knowing that I absolutely suck at it, <laughs> agree that not everybody should be a manager. You're truly uh, among them. But one of the reasons I think that we are looking for people with a lot of skills is because we still pay managers more than the specialist often i think i know that in in startups that's been changing a lot but on average you still need to grow up to become a manager which is somebody who's more generalistic on average than a specialist so that might be you know our payment system the way we give people their salaries how we calculate salaries might actually be the reason that we are often going for a more generalist approach. I got to tell you, one of the few organizations I saw this change, unfortunately, I think they, they changed it back a couple of years ago, was the Dutch police force, where they at some point said a good detective 
we'd rather have you solve murders than to become a manager behind an Excel spreadsheet. So we're now offering opportunities that a detective can grow financially beyond your average manager, which was a unique situation in the Dutch culture back then. And that's interesting because that, you know, that directly relates back to sports as well, doesn't it? Because the managers are normally the person that's paid the least on the team. You know, if you, uh, you know, to, to take your team, PS, PSV? PSV, yeah. PSV, right? So I bet the coach is on the least amount of money out of the, the superstar players. It actually, it used to be, I was very surprised, but it used to be that, you know, who's hitting the old Dutch coach, yeah. uh, Chelsea? He always demanded that he make one quid more than the best paid player. Okay. And the only time he failed at that, if I'm not mistaken, was at Anzi Makalela, where Samuel Eto'o was making insane, insane <laughs> amounts of money, and they refused to pay him that. But uh, even when he was interim at Chelsea, he was making more than the best by Chelsea player, who I don't know who it was at the time. But So apparently coaches make a lot of money, but I do believe that then, right now uh, you're right that the star players are making more. But that's only been a change for the last 10 years. Right, but it goes back to your point with the Dutch police is that it was okay. You could take a career that's, that's you're very good at this one thing. You're the detective, right? You can solve these problems and you can be financially rewarded equally as well as, as taking the manager route. Whereas it used to be the way to get on with your career was to become the manager of other people. For me, one of the notes I wrote down, you know, reviewing some of the things I've seen before is, is that typically these coaches and sports teams are obsessed with improving. And so the only way for them to get better is to consistently train, to practice, to come up with new plays. And do we do that as the leaders do that with their teams? Do we have this environment where there's a culture of continuous improvement, where we continue growing and learning the people, you know, growing and learning within the teams? I think that the answer is yes, but in the wrong way. Because what I see at most managers always want to change things and improve. But as a, a coach once told me or a trainer once told me, he said, well, listen, do you really think Federer would have liked it if his coach all of a sudden said, now you're going to play with a record between your teeth because we need to try something new? No, he's training him to do the exact same move over and over again, just become better at it because a forehand and a backhand is what it is. So what I actually think is what we're failing at as managers, and if you're talking about team sports, and you said it before, Cal, it's about getting the basics right. And what we're not doing anymore is coaching people continuously on getting, improving on the basics, improving on the uh, intake, improving on writing job ads, and just having... Literally, I hear people saying, listen, we had a, a write a great job ad training three years ago. I'm like, shouldn't you be having that every six months? Just a refresher course? You don't have to learn anything new to learn. Yeah, I mean, I agree. For me, the talent acquisition or recruitment, the, 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 the basics for me start with qualifying. Qualifying the job spec, qualifying the candidate making sure we understand really what we're looking for rather than here's an HR spec or description that's been added to over two or three years. Yeah, I think one point I would probably make on that, and I think one of the reasons why we don't do this is because if you say some, to somebody, we're going to go back over the basics, immediately they roll their eyes. Go, but I already know this. And you know, I don't know necessarily whether it's management or people, but we have this expectation that like we should be learning something new that's going to take us somewhere else. So it's sometimes it's about reframing it, right? If you say to somebody, 
where I'm going to coach you on the best way to optimize your strategy for developing talent, that suddenly they're like, oh, cool, I want to learn that. Great. Well, the first way of doing that is to get the best person up front. And the best way to do that is to know exactly what you need up front. And the only way to do that is to have a really good job description. So it's sometimes it's about positioning, right? If we if we say to somebody, oh, we're just going to go over the basics, you you minimize it and you almost diminish the value of it. So it's framing it in a way so that people understand why it's actually valuable. And I think in in sport, everything is valuable because output triumphs everything. Right. I mean, if you I, I remember sessions where my daughter was doing these what they call wind sprints, right? 200 meter sprint over and over and over and over again until you feel like like they look like they were about to throw up and they would jog back to the starting line and they would go again. And the reason they were doing it, it's the simplest thing, right? Just run for 200 meters. These are people who run for, for 5K, 10K, in some cases, 100K. What does 200 meters teach you about running 10K? It teaches you that at the moment that you need to run 200K really fast, it's going to be the most important skill that you need to have. So focusing on those things and giving people a really good reason as to why it's important reframes the mindset and gives people a reason to go back to basics, even though calling it that, I think has people switching off and not really paying attention. I remember, if I'm correct, Cal, that uh, you used to have a few agencies in the UK as well. And I remember you once telling me that actually based on the data, you would give the person with the highest number of applicants per job description the task to teach uh, writing job descriptions to his colleagues every, I don't know, six months or something? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The other thing with sports is you look at sports teams, right? They'll they'll be happy to make a 1% improvement. And I wonder if in the corporate world or the startup world, coming up with this might improve my team by 1%, it's just, is that language, does that language work in the corporate world? You know, because you can make a 1% improvement in Formula One and that's a, that's a noticeable difference, right? You shave a half a second off your time and you might win a race or you might win. And look at the pit stop crews in Formula One. There's a classic example of every year coming down to the point where you, you're probably going to see a sub two second pitch stop change at some point. But do we do we take that making a small improvement? Is it is it dismissed in the corporate world too quickly? I think it can be. I think the the thing about elite sporting groups is one percent is the difference between success or failure. Right? I mean if you're if you're the, I don't know, the the you know the Eintracht, you know, racing team and you make an improvement of one percent it makes you slightly better than you were before. Whereas if you're Ferrari and you make a 1% improvement, you've gained an exponential difference over somebody. So it's, again, it's probably about the framing. I have a, a coach myself and, and her mantra to me is always, if you can move forward by two millimeters, you're a lot further forward. And if you did that every day over the course of a year, you would be immeasurably further forward than you are. And again, it's about framing. If you frame it in the right way that, If you do a 1% increment and you lift everybody, then it's not just 1%, it's a multiplier effect. And I think we lose sight of that as well, that you know the multiplier effect is so incredibly important. And inside a team, if you make one person better by 1%, you'll have that incremental effect across everybody else. But I think you're right, Kelly, we do look at things like everybody wants to grow by, you know, revenues up by 42%, customer satisfaction's up by 28%, because big numbers are headline items that sell product, 
or sell engagement or or sell, you know, employer brand recognition. And I think it's underappreciated for sure. All right. I just want to, because there are two things I still want to talk to you guys about or ask your opinion about before we end this podcast. First of all, the scouts, as he said, are basically data interpreters. They are there to interpret the data we see. Shouldn't recruiters be like that as well? Shouldn't we try to figure out more data points than just doing an interview? Uh, how do you guys see that working out? I think they already are. And again, it depends what what type of company. So it's, it's hard to just generalize for everybody. But you know, a good recruiter looks at a resume and they're interpreting data very, very quickly, sometimes probably too quickly, right? But they're looking at that person and they're saying, is there, a, is there a match? Is there a reason to continue this conversation to the next step by looking at their resume and making interpretation? Now, you know, this whole kind of, you know, prefer of conversations around bias and other things. But generally, I think they already are doing that. And I think when they find that person, there is some follow-on steps that they will naturally go to, whether they're checking LinkedIn or the other things that you do within your company. So I, I think they actually do. Yeah, I think we do. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure this wasn't a leading question to uh, to set up the fact that assessments are the best way to hire people, Baz, because you wouldn't do that at all. You're not obsessed by assessments. There was no preconceived bias on your part there. But if that was the case, then yes, you would say the thing that sport does for you, you do have data because it's about output and it's measuring physical output. But then there's subsets to that. And I know, again, if I take it back to running, one of the things they do now is they measure your biomechanics. They literally film you to work out the optimum model that you should be running at based on the distance of your leg and your hip placement and your bones and all those kinds of things. So they've taken data science to a whole new level and they have more sources. So as Kelly said, I think we are using data now, but could we use more data? Are there ways that we could get access to better data points? That would be perhaps just putting it out there where maybe assessments would be the thing. But I think it's assessments perhaps on multiple levels. I think there are times when businesses have decided, right, we're going to assess one thing, right? It might be aptitude for learning or, you know, time under pressure or whatever it might be. And they hone in on one data set. How do you find ways of looking and exploring at more? And what's the incentive for you to look at more? Because doing that is time-consuming and costly. And I think so much, unfortunately, is still going to fall to the recruiter to do because you're a costly asset for a business as well. So perhaps we have to rely on experiential too much, but I think we're certainly doing that already and looking at a number of different data points as we go forward. All right. Last question. I recently found out, actually, that EY in the United Kingdom has a special recruiting unit for hiring former professional sports athletes, which can be anything, as you know, if you made the Olympics, you're basically in their target. And I talked to them and they said, the reason we do this is by injecting somebody who's been at the top of their game in professional sports completely upgrades the entire department within in mentality wise within the company so they're not recruiting them as recruiters they're recruiting them for different parts of the company and i just wanted to know your opinion about that does does it bring a certain mentality and michael i'll start with you because you have played sports <laughs> at, at least a certain high level higher than kel and i ever did look i think there is some real value in having somebody that people really admire if you have that aspirational goal to, I wish I could be like them, 
modeling on somebody who is a superstar. I use quotation marks there, not on a podcast. That's a little difficult mechanism to show. But, you know, if you model yourself on a superstar and try and model their behaviors, maybe you pick up some of their traits and characteristics. Now, uh, having just talked about assessments and data points, how do you assess the influence that somebody has on culture, right? We can have a whole other discussion about what culture means, but there could be those intangible things that having somebody around that you're aspirationally inclined to be more like that would raise the standard of behaviour perhaps and and that might actually then influence performance overall. Well, we can have an entire podcast on that, but there was actually recently a cool research that there's such a thing as a team player who actually upgrades the entire team, but that has to do with uh, somebody's visual perception of emotions, interestingly enough, but... We can have a complete podcast on that. But what I've understood from them was that it was the ever-improving mentality of a sportsman that made what Kel actually said, you know, look for the marginal gains, the 1% improvement, but continuously always questioning what you're doing and trying to improve it. And that's what got departments ahead when a professional top athlete once joined them. Kel, your last thoughts on this? I think it's a very difficult question to answer simply because there are so many nuances, but I agree with you. I've seen, and and I think a lot depends on the industry. You know, I know of one incredibly successful recruitment business, and I'm talking one of the, like one of the largest in the US, you know, employing over 10,000 people. And when they started, their original recruitment model was to hire people that have played sports at a college level because what they wanted was a competitive gene. Right, it was a recruitment business, contingent recruitment business, and they knew they could teach the other things. They knew they could get them good at other things, but they wanted that competitive will to win, that willing to just go that extra mile. Um, so I think in in that example and those examples, absolutely. But again, it depends on the job and the industry and what you're looking for. All right. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, I think we've concluded that TA can learn a lot from professional sports. We can learn to look beyond just the individual and look at the individual of a team. We should probably look more at top qualities instead of things that might be lesser within a person. That will more look to what can a person do versus what can't a person do what adds in the team, look for data and uh, look for continuous improvement. And on that note, I would like to thank you all for listening. Uh, If you like our show, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, preferably five stars. And we'll be back next week. (laughs) 